4: Warning, this series contains discussions of themes that might be distressing for some listeners.
2: It's like a nightmare. Even living in Gauls, like a nightmare. There's so many memories on that, you know. close my eyes at night and I still see him, you know. Sometimes I do think he's still there, but he's not. Of it
4: all. And what do you want to happen?
2: I want someone to listen.
4: The Boy in the Water is a newsroom.co.nz production. Mysterious circumstances, improbable theories, a debacle of a police investigation, and a small town on edge. What really happened to little Lockie Jones? Kia ora, I'm Melanie Reid, Newsroom's Investigations Editor. Welcome to the fifth episode of our podcast, The Boy in the Water, The Night Lockie Died.
2: I got up in the morning, he said, oh, Dad, promise me you'd come back. So I gave him a kiss and was fidgeting around and that, and then sort of halfway asleep. And then I said, oh, I promise I'll come back and see you after work.
4: And this is Tuesday, the 29th of January, 2019. When three-and-a-half-year-old Lockie Jones was found floating face-up in the sewerage oxidation ponds on the outskirts of the small town of Gore in New Zealand's South Island, he was wearing his fluorescent high-vis vest and his replica policeman's hat was floating nearby. His nappy was full and he had supposedly climbed a gate or wooden fence and walked barefoot for 1.2 kilometres, gone along a rough gravel road, over an embankment and down a track covered in long grass, thistles and nettles. We are now going to take a detailed look at Tuesday 29 January 2019, leading up to the night Lockie died and the surprising events of the next day. You had stayed at the house in Salford Street mm-hmm. on the Monday, Lockie's found dead on the Tuesday, but on the yep. Monday, you stayed yes. at the house.
2: Yep, definitely. Yep.
4: And what's going on now with you and Lockie's mother? Are you getting back together? Is there a reconciliation?
2: Oh, we're definitely talking and that, and yeah, we're we getting along
4: good. I was visiting her at her work and all that, yeah. So at the house on the Monday night, what was going on with Lockie? What was happening
2: there? Oh, he just, um, he yeah, was pretty clingy and that, and um, we stayed in the room and, um, I had a sore back and that, so he rubbed my back and he said, oh, all better, Dad, and I said, yeah, all better. And we sung a song and then he said, oh, I might come with you tomorrow, and I said, oh.
4: Come with you in the career run? Mm-hmm.
2: And you can drop me at kindy. I said, oh, no, I'll come back after work. I said, you go to kindy and Dad promised you come back after work, and, um, He said, oh, we might go to a motel. And I said, oh, oh, we might on the weekend. I said, we can't tomorrow. And he said, oh, I don't want to live here.
4: Paul says Lockie's 16-year-old half-brother, who lived at Salford Street with his mum and Lockie, was not happy at all about him being back at the house.
2: He said that um, when I come back, he said, oh, 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 what? what's that cunt doing here? And um, his mum said, oh, he's got to see his son, so he's staying in the the room and and that. And he said, oh, he he didn't want me back there. So um, she cooked him tea and took his tea to his room because he was playing the games. And that's when I heard him say that. And so, um, yeah, he obviously, for some reason, thought that uh, maybe I'm spending more time there.
4: Can you recall the last words Lockie he said to you? Do you remember?
2: Oh, he said, oh, Dad promised me you'd come back. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll come back after work and uh, see you before I go and get my hair cut. And uh, he was pretty upset, but um, I said, I promise I'll come back. So I said, you're going to have a good day at kindy and I'll see you when before I go back to Invercargill. So I gave him a kiss, and he sort of was fidgeting around and that. And, sort of halfway asleep and, and I said, oh, I promise I'll come back and see you after work. So,
4: And this is Tuesday the 29th of January 2019.
2: Yep. Yeah, when I finally left, for Lockie's mum, she made me breakfast and I kissed her and all that. So I had my breakfast and went back to check on me and sound asleep again. So it was all good.
4: That was the last time Paul would see his little boy alive. Paul went off to do his early morning courier run around Gore. That afternoon, he was back at the depot loading more freight when he says Lockie's mum turned up unexpectedly. While she also worked part-time in the courier depot, her short shifts consigning freight were always in the early evenings, never at the same time as when Paul was there. But on this day, Paul says she turned up in the afternoon.
2: At four o'clock she did, yep, around four o'clock, yep, definitely. She parked way out the front on the gutter and I was down by the desk because we had uh, some late freight that day so... I was talking to someone, I can't remember who it was, and uh, she came running in and uh, said, oh, oh, Lockie hasn't been very well, and I picked him up from kindy, and it's hot and that, so he's going to go home and have a sleep, so um, just go and get your hair cut, and uh, I'll get him to ring you. And And I said, oh, Okay.
4: Paul was experiencing a heatwave, and it was still around 28 degrees when he finished work around 5pm and drove south to Invercargill where he was living. At 7pm, Paul went to get his haircut, and since the early evening, Paul and Lockie's mum had been messaging each other. So there's a series of texts, they're quite flirty, mm-hmm. with each other. Here's the text exchange, 6.23, mm-hmm. one of them says... Um, how much does it cost for a haircut and a Mm blowjob? That's what she's asking you. Mm -hmm. You were talking about, you know, by 8.13, 8.40, you were talking about what motel to stay at in Dunedin in the weekend that's Mm -hmm. coming up. So things were on track for a reconciliation. Can I put it that way? Definitely. Her last text to you was at 8.40. Mm-hmm. But the witness says that they sighted Lockie at
2: Mm 8:30.
4: This witness, who we'll hear about in the next episode, believes they saw Lockie on the corner of the street leading to the ponds at about 8:30 p.m. Yet Lockie's mother says he didn't go missing until 9 p.m.
2: Well, she texted me at 8:40, and she definitely didn't say that Lockie was missing then, or there was nothing wrong with him. Uh, but Yet She says that in her statement that she thinks he went missing around nine. Exactly, and it doesn't fit with any timeline. No timeline was ever done, you know.
4: Let's go back, though, to what Lockie's mother says about that afternoon. In her police statement, she says she went home after picking Lockie up from kindy and then would have dropped her 16-year-old son off at his part-time job, which wasn't far from the courier depot. She doesn't mention her earlier trip to see Paul at the depot, but says she went there for her evening shift to consign parcels for rural delivery into the scanner. She doesn't stay to time. It says that the scan last pinged at 5.47, so she was at work.
2: She comes back at, um, after I've gone and um, scans out all the RD drivers, um, which are the rural deliveries.
4: So it says in the documents that her last scan was at 5.47pm.
2: Yep, so she would have been in, in my depot in Orsdale Street at that time. She has to scan them out and passes them over, so she was definitely there at that time.
4: In his police statement, her 16-year-old son says he was at work from 3.20pm until 5.30pm. Text messaging records show at 518 he asked his mother, can you come and get me? Two minutes later she replies, at depot, blocked in. At 524 her son replies, okay, I'll come. In his police statement, he says we may have gone to the supermarket on the way home. There is no mention of where Lockie is during this time. It's very odd that in both these crucial witness statements, police have not addressed where Lockie was in the afternoon after he was picked up from kindy through until the early evening. I'm not suggesting there's anything untoward here, but this seems like a major oversight in the already flawed police investigation.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit juviderm.com.
4: Back now to Paul. He went to his haircut appointment in Invercargill. He left the salon at 7.50pm and went home, went to bed, where he continued texting Lockie's mother. The last text message he sent, re-potential motel room bookings, was at 9.16pm. It went unanswered. 111 emergency, your call is being connected. According to the police file, Lockie's mum made the 111 call at 9.35pm. She was on the phone for 11 and a half minutes. She says in her police statement, it was following the emergency call that she phoned Paul and told him Lockie was missing.
2: I um, left in the car at my dad's house in Eastdale Road, drove up to Gore. I actually drove up in my career van, flat out, and met Dave Aiken. Who's yeah. your friend? Who's my friend that I uh, had rung and told him that Lockheed was missing. Uh, that that he was missing, so I uh, met him there and.
4: Met him where?
2: At the house where Lockheed lived. Salford Street. Salford Street, yep. Yeah. So I um, met him there and walked in.
4: Cell phone polling in the police file has Paul travelling from Invercargill to Gore, arriving at 10:50 p.m. He went straight to see Lockie's mum.
2: And when I walked in, uh, she was there with um, some friends. Uh, The two step brothers were there, and they had a whole lot of friends there as well. Up to ten, maybe eleven people there, or around that number anyway.
4: And what did you think?
2: Oh, I said, oh, he's lucky. They said, oh, how do you mean? And then I said, oh, well, where is he? And I said, oh, nothing better happened to him. Won't well, you, yeah, nothing better happened to him. And that's when they come up because uh, I was obviously a bit agitated. And then they, obviously, you think you were a bit aggro? No, nah, I wasn't aggro. I was just wild. Just
4: so you weren't aggro, you were just wild.
2: Yeah. Oh, just took me back when they when they were sitting there when a wee boy was like that was missing, and they were, looked like they were leading their normal lives. It was just devastating. Then we jumped in the van, me and Dave, and we drove around all the showgrounds, all around the side streets, and um, way around past um, all the fields, and uh, looked over by the TNC all around there, right down to Hyde Street.
4: What's and
2: that. TNC? Oh, the TNC? The Gore Town and Country Club. There's a big car park and all that there and we yeah, went right down over to Hyde Street and kept driving around but we never seen him. And then uh, we drove up south Street and then there was a, a, an ambulance at the house. So I went I uh, went there and uh, asked the ambulance driver what he was doing and he said, oh, he was there for a cardiac arrest. I said, oh, not at this house. I said, I've just been in here, there's p- people in here but there's no cardiac arrest. And then then someone uh, he got onto the uh, walkie-talkie or whatever and someone told him it was down at the um, down at the ponds.
4: So you followed the ambulance yeah, down to the ponds mm-hmm. and what happened then?
2: Oh they opened the gates and the ambulance went up and uh, me and Dave stand at the uh, corner, with, there's a whole lot of people there and uh, yeah we just waited.
4: It was Constable Lachlan MacDonald, the dog handler, who located Lockie's body. His dog G had been given the start point where Lockie was last seen. G couldn't find any scent around the lock gates into the oxidation ponds or around the perimeter of the first pond. The dog's body language suddenly changed, 40 metres away from the west bank of the second pond. At 11.15, Constable MacDonald saw Lockie floating motionless in shallow water at the edge of the pond. He was face up, with both knees exposed, breaking the surface of the water, which meant they were bent. His hands and face were beneath the water, he was cold to the touch. So you were waiting at the gates.
2: At the corner of um, Grasslands and, and Southwood Street, me and Dave, where there's a whole heap of people there.
4: And then the police officer came and saw you. Mm-hmm. And said what?
2: You no, know, that he was deceased. They'd found him and he was, um, yeah. That wasn't a shock to me. When I left Umbercargill to come to Gore, I told my dad, "Lock he's dead. I had a gut feeling.
4: Wow. Why did you have a gut feeling, do you think?
2: I don't know. It was just instinct. Because my dad said, oh, don't go up there. They'll find him in five minutes. I said, no, they won't. I think he's dead.
4: Was your dad there?
2: Yeah, uh, he arrived la- a bit later than that. But he was on his way. He, uh, We walked back towards the um, house. And he turned up there. Um, we did go back down to see if Lockie's mum wanted to join us to say goodbye, but she did want to.
4: So your friend that you're with, Dave, mm-hmm. he's a paramedic, mm-hmm. ex-paramedic, 30 years mm-hmm. in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. Did, oh. he, did he go and see Lockie? Um,
2: we went down with Dad, and uh, Dad and his partner come, and uh, me and Dave, because they took Lockie uh, down to the um, St John's, and they had him in the back of a police car because the ambulance was busy, so they put him in the back of the police car and um, Dave touched him and and that, and uh, and so did my dad. I couldn't look. When they said he was stone cold, my dad said just to keep away, so I did.
4: (laughs) She didn't see him in the police car?
3: Well, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, Devastated. Devastated. This is Paul's dad, Graham Jones. We got in the back of the police car and... Uh, gave him a cuddle and he was frozen. Absolutely frozen. Couldn't believe it, how cold he was. And, uh...
4: And Paul was with you and Dave Akin?
3: Yeah, that's right, yep. They were all down there and to find him laying in there, and so frozen, you know, just unbelievable. It was just shocking, yeah.
4: What was Paul doing?
3: He was there, he was there looking on, and you know, I could tell his heart was stripped apart.
4: Mm. And yours must have been too.
3: Oh, it was, it was just, you know, it's never ever thought it would happen, yeah. You can't get it out of your mind.
4: Well, thank you very much for seeing us.
0: It's good fine.
4: And for the cup of tea out here in the countryside. As the Mayor, what did you do? Yeah. Um, when you found out that Lockie had drowned.
0: So I thought it was sort of incumbent on me to go and visit the family, given that it happened on, on our site. Uh, and being brave, I waited till school had finished and Robin came with me.
4: We're with Tracy Hicks, who was the Mayor of Gore at the time, and his wife Robin, a schoolteacher. They went to see Lockie's mother the day after he was found. We took some flowers round.
0: That's right, yes, we did too. Um,
4: Is that the sort of thing that you do because you're from Gore?
0: Well it was a situation where it was really really sad and so I said we just need to pop in and as the mayor we need to just go and see how they're going and you know if there was anything we could do and so away we went. It's something that you, you, you've just got to do. yeah. And, and just for a bit of context, um, you know, I've taken quite a number of funerals over the years uh, and been involved with families who are grieving, um, families that have had suicides, um, accidents, uh, all sorts of all manner of deaths that have um, been quite shocking, and and it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a shock to me in some ways that the scene at the house was different to what I experience before.
4: And what you expected?
0: Um, yeah, yeah I think it was. Yeah. There's certainly no obvious grief. And and there's not always obvious grief. And and I'm not sure what Robin's thoughts are, but that wasn't um, evident on that day. I I just I thought I, from the beginning I felt this is strange. If you walked into the room when we were there and didn't have any knowledge of what had happened the previous night, you wouldn't know that anything had happened.
1: Mm.
0: It worried me for a long time and I don't know why I was
4: worried. Coming up in the next episode, what does Lockie's mum say in her police statement?
1: I walked out into the kitchen and looked out the kitchen window. I saw the yellow vest and thought that kid looked like Lockie. I went into the lounge and saw his program had finished on the TV. realised it was Lockie running down the street.
4: And the witness statements.
0: If that's the policing in this country, we're fucked. Absolutely fucked because that's not policing.
4: For more journalism that matters, including our award-winning true crime series and podcast Peter, Alice, The Crash Case and Me, head to newsroom.co.nz or your favourite podcast app. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate and review our series. It helps new listeners find us. You can also follow our social media pages by searching Melanie Reid Investigates. This series is written and produced by me, Melanie Reid, along with Bonnie Sumner and Judith Curran. It's edited by Paul Entercott. Original music by Age Pryor. You're listening to The Boy in the Water, public interest journalism funded through Aotearoa New Zealand On Air.